0: I'm going to be reading from a couple of passages in scripture this morning uh, from John 20 and Acts 4. So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, I'll be reading from the NIV. John 20, starting at verse 19 and going to 30, Acts 4, 32 to 35. Let me first open with a word of prayer. Lord, uh, these passages are amazing and wonderful and complex and delightful and scary. And we ask that your spirit would enter into this space, our space, in the same way you entered into that room, to give us your shalom, to hear your voice, and to allow us to to be changed because we met with you, that your shalom would rest and abide with us. For we ask in your name, amen. So John 20, starting at 19. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Shalom, be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Shalom, be with you. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone their sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where his nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Shalom, be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it in my side, stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. And Acts 4, 32 to 35. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them. There was no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as they had need. May God be blessed in the reading of his holy scriptures this morning. So my sermon is titled, Jesus Brings His Shalom at the Resurrection. Jesus Brings His Shalom at the Resurrection. I've been thinking about this word shalom and how uh, we often use the word shalom or peace interchangeably, and often when we do so, we, we kind of make it fall short of the true meaning of the word. And I want to kind of highlight that through other words. And I was trying to think of other words that we actually use that aren't what we say they are. And I think of all of the words that, that, that uh, younger people use. I say that because I'm getting older, even though I don't look it with my beautiful haircut. Um, but I'm getting older and I don't use these expressions anymore. Uh, the, the ones that are saying the one word but actually meaning the exact opposite of it. You show something to somebody and they say, that's sick. And you're like, really? So it's no good? No, it's amazing. Really? Yeah, it's sick. You're like, wow. And then and, and so there's, there's this weird expression that we have like that. And, and my kids would do this, you know, whenever I'd announce something that we're about to do, and then they would do one of these with me. Oh, pa, that sounds fun. Does that sound like they want to have to do that? They don't want to do that. Right. They would say it. Oh, that sounds fun. And that's kind of the way that it, it's, it's used so that the, the, the opposite is brought out. I wanted to highlight that because there's a couple of words I want to talk about today. Uh, shalom and peace being one of them, but the other word being justice. Justice is the movement towards shalom. Would you, would you agree with me on that? Justice is the movement towards shalom. The idea that the, the, the church is called to, that society is called to a movement towards shalom. But justice often is sold short in our way of looking at things. Think about news headlines when things go awry in people's life and they ask for justice. Rarely do they want shalom. More often they want revenge. Would you agree with me on that? That most people, when they say the word justice, they're not thinking, how can we set this right? How can we have restoration? How can we make sure that the, way, the world is the way it should be? They say, I got hurt, so I want to hurt them, right? That's often what people mean by the word justice. And I think there's, there's a lot of words like that in scripture that we just kind of fall short. We, we, we kind of sell the whole thing really short. And I think the greatest one of all is shalom or peace. I grew up in a home that peace was used regularly by my mom. Does anybody else grow up in a home like that? I've asked that question here a few times and I'm sure some of you have had that. Where you grew up and moms would say stuff like, I would just want peace and quiet. I want peace and quiet, which means two things, one go away, right? So that she could have some quiet time, which was good, I understand that. I'm a parent now and I kinda like that same thing. And it also meant whatever was creating the noise would that stop. And most of us believe peace to be that. Peace is the absence of conflict. Peace is the absence of things going awry or or things not not, uh, crashing between two things. So we, we, we try all the time to gain peace. We try all the time to gain that type of peace. And what happens often when we do that is conflict tends to just sit under the surface. Would you agree with me on that one? that if we try to aim for peace, meaning no conflict, the conflict is still there, but we tend to keep it under the surface. You can see this with race relations going on in the United States right now and in other places, that for years and years and years, we've kind of just pushed it under the surface and, and kept it under there. We said, let's just be peaceful. We can see that in, in churches at times, and I've been in enough churches where this is, this is kind of the rule of it, that you try to be nice with people. You don't come confront people or try to deal with things that are issues with you, you just try to be nice. And so you come to church on a Sunday morning and you smile a lot at people and you, how you doing? I'm doing good, how are you doing? I'm doing great. And then behind the scenes we talk about them and we talk about the conflict and we feel a little weird inside, but, but we tend to try to think that peace is the absence of conflict. So then we, when we do that, we sell peace short. We don't allow the fullness of peace to come. And the fullness of peace is this idea of shalom. Shalom is the way it should be. Isn't that a beautiful thing to say? The way it should be. And and people in, in the Mideast, as you know, greet one another with the word shalom. They greet one another and say, may your world be the way it should be. May everything in your life line up the way that God intended it to be. We see this picture of shalom right at the beginning in Genesis, where God puts things in play one bit at a time. First he deals with the the days and the lights and then he starts putting each of the, 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 the plants and then the animals in play and all of it working itself out in this beautiful dance of shalom. That everything is just the way it should be and every time he adds a new element, what does he say? It is good. It is good. Every time he adds a new element, he says this is good. Then he adds humanity, and he's about to rest. So that means it's the last thing that God puts into the created order. And what does he say once the last thing is put into the created order? He says it is very good. Everything is the way it should be now. Everything is in an interconnected, beautiful dance together the way it should be, shalom, shalom. It's not too long in scripture before we realize that shalom is ripped and torn and, and messed up, and often it's done for power, often it's done for control, often it starts with fear, Because we fear things, we want to hold on to things. And when we want to hold on to things, we want to control things. And you do that in a relationship, it becomes abuse. If you do that in a society, it becomes empire. That we do things to control and to oppress and to hold down. In fear, we want to make sure that things are held on to. And so when the the Israelites come out of the Exodus, where they were crushed as an oppressed people, They were crushed in Egypt by an oppressive empire. Yahweh gives them the Torah and says, here's the way to live. Here's the way to return back to shalom. Here's the way to return back to the way it should be. I want you to interact with all sorts of different people and all sorts of different things, like the garden, like the way it was in the created order, that everything is dancing in its perfect place. And so he puts in weird things for us that it doesn't make any sense unless you're a farmer and you start to understand it, that every seven years the land needs rest that is put right into there. And there's a rotation of crops over the, over the, the land so that the, the land can always produce something amazing. But it's not just enough to interact with the created order as, as, as vegetation. It's, it's also that, that if there's not enough for, for the people, if there's people that are being crushed still, that the farmers themselves would leave the very edges of the fields alone. They wouldn't harvest them. And they did this so that the people who were impoverished in the neighborhood could come and and collect without having to to be seen as not having. They'd be able to go and get it for free at the edges of the fields. This was called gleaning. And it was a way of Yahweh just saying, I need my people to be in shalom. And the greatest of all the greatest was this idea of of, uh, jubilee. The way of it. it was a Sabbath of Sabbaths. Right? On the seventh day he rested and he looked over his creation and said, That's very good. Like an artist rests after they're finished their their, their painting or their drawing or their, their music, and they said, That is very good. That feels amazing. Everything is the way it should be. You see God resting like that on the seventh day. Well, he builds the seventh day right into the way we're supposed to interact with one another. That at every seventh day, we're supposed to rest. Every seventh year, we're supposed to rest our land. And every seven, seven years, we're supposed to return the land to the people. Why did we have land in the first place? Because people couldn't afford something. They had debts because sometimes there was droughts in certain areas and amazing rainfall in the other areas. And if the drought came to the one area, they had, they had not enough money. So the people who had enough money bought the land from them and said, okay, we'll let you work the land, but it's not your land anymore. And then at 50 years, God says, give them all their land back. Everybody has to have their land back so that we restore shalom in society. It's the 50 uh, year jubilee. As far as we know, it was never celebrated in the Israelite history. But then Jesus in Luke four says, the spirit is upon me, God's presence is upon me to preach good news for the poor, freedom for the press, recovery of sight for the blind. And this is going to be the year of the Lord's favor. What is the year of the Lord's favor? It's a translation of the word jubilee. Yahweh was speaking through Jesus and bringing jubilee, a shalom to his people, a shalom to his people. And it's so amazing what happens in, in the, the Luke 4 passage because what happens is that the people think, well, the shalom is coming. That means we are the extraordinary people. We, are, the Israelites, are the extraordinary people. That's what they started to believe in their hearts. And how do we know that that's what they were believing in their hearts? Because Jesus counters that right away. No, if we're going to have shalom, there's no extraordinary people. There's beloved people and you're all beloved. That's the point of shalom, that there's nobody above anybody anymore. And so even the Israelites, the blessed by God ones, Jesus said, no, we're all going to have life and life abundantly. We're all going to have shalom. And so what are his two examples right after he says the year of jubilee is about to come? He gives two examples from the the Hebrew scriptures of, of Yahweh giving life to the Gentile. He said, where, where all these other famous people were having troubles, but it was Naaman, and it was the widow's son, and, and that was, and, and he gives those two examples, and he's like, whoa, those are Gentile examples, and they get really angry at Jesus because they want to throw him off a cliff at that point. Do you remember this story? He wants to bring shalom to Israel, but for bringing shalom to Israel means there's going to be a cost to Israel, that you can't just be the blessed people yourself. You have to share that blessing outwards. And now we're starting to understand what Jesus is saying when he walks in the room. And he walks into the room where the people are full of fear because they started to believe in this Jesus and his shalom message. They started to believe that this was the Jesus who was going to to live out the shalom message. They started to follow this Jesus no matter where he went. They would follow him right into Jerusalem, into the heart of the non-shalom storm. The way it wasn't supposed to be was the way Jerusalem was running. So Jesus walks into Jerusalem, flips some, te- some tables in the temple. He speaks with the, the leaders in the synagogue and the, the temple, and he, he calls them out for the way it's not peace, the way it's not shalom. And what does that lead to? It leads directly to his own death. It leads directly to his own death, countering the way that it was in Jerusalem calling out the leadership of the day, calling out the people saying, no, we are called to be people of Shalom. Israel was always to be the leader in Shalom, which means there's life abundantly for everybody. And they didn't like that Jesus was calling them out like this. So they had him killed, handed over to the Romans so that the the Romans would do their dirty work like they always do when there's a, a leader that rises up, that he would get crushed by the Romans. And so now the, 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 the disciples are, are huddling in the upper room. They're huddled there and they're nervous and they're scared of all of the things that, that that meant because they were ready to follow Jesus no matter what. But when your leader gets killed, your movement gets stopped. When your leader gets killed, your movement gets stopped. That's how it works in the Old Testament. That's how it works in the New Testament. That's how it works all through history. If you wanna stop a movement, kill its leader. That's why Martin Luther King Jr. was killed. That's why there's so many people killed for leading movements that we don't like as society. Jesus was leading a movement of shalom and people didn't like it because it was too costly so they took him out. And the disciples are in the upper room saying, now what? What are we going to do? We're gonna get turned over. We hung out with that Jesus, it's us next. And Jesus walks in the room and say, my shalom be with you. My shalom be with you. And all of them start to get it. But they don't get it fully. So he does two different things to bring his shalom to bear upon them. The first thing is he calls them. The first thing is he calls them to their calling. They've been following him the whole time. They get his message now. At least they get the start of it. He's gonna work out the, the fullness of it later. With them, We see that through the book of Acts. We see that through Paul's letters, that they don't quite get the message. Peter still has to have a couple of dreams, right, to figure out the message. Paul still needs to fall off his horse to get the message. We still see a lot of them learning the message, but they got the basic of it. And he's about to call them. So what does he do to call them? It's the passage I've, I've spoken about a lot. Jesus says these amazing words, as the Father sent me. So I send you in the same manner that I was sent to bring shalom, in the same manner that I was living out shalom. You saw it every day, disciples. We walk together every day, disciples. You know what it looks like the way I was sent, disciples. Now I'm sending you to do the same. Go live out that shalom. That methodology, that way of forgiveness, mercy, and grace. How do we know that? That's what he says right away. You have to be people of forgiveness. You have to go out and be the the people who forgive debts. You have to be the people who forgive all the way. What is forgiveness? It's the essence of jubilee. It's the essence of shalom. Shalom if we're going to restore relationships to one another, if we're gonna restore ourselves to the land, if we're gonna restore ourselves to our God, forgiveness is the essence of it. But it's not going to be enough to be called, is it? It's never enough to be called. We have to be empowered. We need that, that Godness with us. And the godness with us is not to make us elite beings that we can hold in the face of other people, go, look at us, we're amazing. We've got Jesus on our side. You do when you're a little kid and you're trying to prove your dad's the better dad. Remember that? We still do that with our God, don't we? We still do that with our God. We got God on our side. We do that. We rub it in people's faces all the time. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, as the Father sent me, so I send you. You must go out in humility. You must go out in love. You must go out in shalom. And you will not do it on your own. There's too much of that control. There's too much of the fear. There's too much of the empire. That needs to be washed out of you. So I will give you my very presence. And he breathes on them. His Holy Spirit comes over them. This is John's Pentecost movement, by the way. This is how John describes Pentecost. That he breathes on them and the Spirit comes upon them. And they are no longer the same. Peace be with you. My shalom be with you. For Jesus to bring his peace into our lives, he first calls us. The second thing that Jesus does to bring peace into our lives is he deals with each of us in our own separate way. I love this story about Thomas. Thomas is my kind of dude because Thomas, I think, is a little courageous. Have you ever been in a room with 10 other people where they all said one thing and you said the other? Have you ever been in that room? Do you know what I'm talking, it might have been more than 10 by the way, we don't know if it's just disciples, we don't know if it's disciples plus the women and the other people and we could be up to a fairly large number, but Thomas walks into the room after they get the, hey we saw Jesus, they they greet him, we saw Jesus, yeah whatever, no no we did. And have you ever been convinced, have you ever been convinced to do something just because somebody else does it? It's a lot of peer pressure, isn't it? Have you ever seen that where you, you're, 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 you're at a stoplight? This is a good way to test it, by the way. If you're at a stoplight and you just roll ahead a little bit just to see what everybody else does. because like, are we supposed to go? And you see that freaky look in their faces like, oh, I, it, what? it's not, what? it's red, it's red, why are you moving? Why are you moving? You can see that look in people's faces because they're nervous because they, well, maybe I missed something, right? That's the way that, that peer pressure works, that you can do little things and you can, that, if, if this is a fun thing to do, if you've got like five of you, look up in the sky just at nothing and just see how many people look at it, just to, just to do it, because people will look because, oh, I wonder what you got there. I was biking yesterday, and this happened to me. There was five people just staring. It happened to be deer, so thankfully it wasn't the nothing look. It wasn't my sociological experiment, but they were all looking at deer. It was a beautiful thing that I had to be able to stop and see that. But that's the point, is that when people are all doing the same thing, we tend to move along with it. Thomas did not. Thomas said, I, I can't believe it, and I won't believe it until I see the the... If I can put my fingers in the the sides and the hands, then I can believe it. What I love about this is Thomas's honesty in the face of peer pressure. How many of us would bow to peer pressure at that moment and just go along with what everybody else is saying? I'm thinking Thomas has real guts here. I would probably use a different expression if I was talking downtown London. But he uses real guts here. That it's, it's, it's something with him in, within him that he needs to be honest. We see this actually with Peter as well. He was in that, that full of fear moment before the resurrection, before the crucifixion. When he's sitting around the charcoal fire when he's sitting around the charcoal fire and he's full of fear, but honestly, that's who he is. He's a fear-driven, he's, he's an action-based guy and he's always got his feelings right on the top of him all of the time. He's the guy slicing off ears. He's the guy making stupid statements at the top of the Transfiguration mountain. He's the, he's the one who's making beautiful things happen but it's always bold and here's the one when he gets called out. Aren't you the one with Jesus? No, I wasn't him. Are you sure you weren't with Jesus? No, it wasn't me. Are you sure it was, you weren't with him? No, it wasn't me. Peter, in all of his honesty and all of his fear, just lays it out. Thomas, in all of his honesty and all of his fears and all of his doubts, just lays it out. And what I find fascinating is Jesus meets them both right where they're at. Right? We don't hear any condemnation in Jesus when, when, when Thomas... Uh, and him interact. We hardly hear any condemnation between Peter and Jesus when Jesus and Peter interact. We'll go to Peter and then we'll go to Thomas. What's the interaction look like? Well, Jesus meets Peter by a charcoal fire. The only time, two times in all of, all of John's gospel that he uses that same word, it's charcoal fire. Why? Because fire is a mnemonic device. It's a smell device, right? Smell is very powerful for our memory. And so Peter standing right beside that same smell of the fire where he denied Jesus would have had the entire flash of his moment of interacting with Jesus just flash before his eyes and he would have remembered every single thing. And then Jesus says, do you love me? Yes, I do. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, I do. Do you truly love me? Lord, I'm getting kind of frustrated that you keep asking me all of these questions. Of course, you know I love you. And then shalom is restored, and Peter is called afresh. Then, Peter, you will be the one. You will be the one to lead, and you will be the one to go out and share this shalom message with all until it takes your life. Thomas. Jesus walks into the room. He doesn't say, Thomas, you dolt. What's wrong with you? Why didn't you believe in me? You know, could have used any expression, well, probably some, a good Jewish expression of an insult to a person. He doesn't use any of that. He walks into the room and says, peace be with you. Thomas, get over here. Check this out right there. Come on. Throw your fingers right here. Come on. Check it out. You think Jesus had fun? Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Anyways, so (laughs) he he invites Thomas to just put his fingers in, and Thomas doesn't even respond by putting his fingers in. Thomas, just with the invitation, says, my Lord and my God. Jesus brings shalom to Peter. Jesus brings shalom to Thomas because he meets them right in their honesty, Now, these two people have been insulted through church history for these two moments by paintings, by music, by writers. We look at those, Peter had a really bad moment and he laid down and he was denying him. And Thomas, we we don't even call Thomas Didymus, like John tries to say. He's also known as Didymus. No, we call him Doubting Thomas. For the rest of his life, he gets known as Doubting Thomas. He's not the worshiping Thomas, which is like eight seconds later, my Lord and my God. No, he's Doubting Thomas for the history of church. I think these two people are actually the way to be the church, which is honesty. I think honesty leads to shalom. And if we're actually going to be honest, and if we're actually going to deal with things that aren't the way they should be, we're not going to have peace, meaning avoiding conflict. Because conflict will arise, won't it? If we're actually going to set things right, conflict is going to show up. Conflict is going to feel awkward. It's going to be weird because we as the church have been programmed to be so nice to one another. But conflict... The way to be honest and allow those things. Anybody who's been in a good relationship knows this. The only way to get your relationship stronger is by being honest. The more you hid who you are by being peaceful, the more you did not have shalom. We are called to shalom by Jesus. He calls us to this wonderful thing of peace. Asks us to be the people who lead it out in this world. He asks us to find ways to interact with the created order and bring back shalom there. Not using the created order for our benefit, but partnering with the created order. That's what the true meaning of steward is from Genesis to partner with creation. Not to overuse it because we're so anthropo- more anthropocentric, the idea that we're centering on humanity only. No, that, that we, would, we would see that the creation is there with us and for us and we're part of it. That the sustainability of this planet depends on us not being human-centered, but being created-centered. And then we start to see that our interactions with one another are only going to be uh, good if everyone has enough. That's the point of the Acts passage, right? The Acts passage said, when there wasn't enough for some of the people, the people who had, this is what I was talking about with those who have and those who did not have, remember that? And these people who have have to come down. What did they do with those who had? They sold their stuff and they gave it to the apostles to make sure there was a distribution among everybody. Shalom lived out only matters if everybody is in shalom. We've so minimalized shalom that it's about me and my God. I'm set right with my God. That's not enough. We need to be set right with our God, each other, the created order, and then we need to start thinking is there enough for this whole culture that we're in, the society we're in. Everybody has to have enough. And some of us have too much. Whew. I've said a lot. So let me pray. And let's try to soak in some of that stuff about shalom. Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for all of this that you have given to us this morning. We thank you for your shalom. We thank you for your peace which you bring us. You walked into the room then, you walk into our rooms now and you say, my shalom, I give you. Help us to understand what that means. We've made this so small our whole lives. We've made it about uh, avoiding conflict. Help us to realize that being nice and avoiding conflict, that type of peace is actually the opposite of shalom. Help us to hear your voice calling us to be honest, to lift up all of those nasty parts of ourselves to you and that you would would deal with them, wash them free, make them the way they should be, bring them into shalom as well. It's so easy to hide who we are. It's so easy to hold back all of these things that would look ugly to everybody else. And we ask that you seek deep into our hearts to pull out those nasty bits of of Thomas and Peter that lie within us all. And that you would use those moments of restoration to bring true justice to bear on all of us. And that we would go from, from here being restored to you, restored to one another, to seeing what it would be looking like to be restored to society, that everybody would have enough. That those of us who have too much would sell and there would be enough for all. Help us to be people of shalom. Help us to be your church. As the Father sent you, so you send us. Breathe upon us afresh, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.